Life Support listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. This week, we get to talk with Dr. Smith about IMGs. And if you don't know what that means, we'll get to the alphabet soup here in just a minute. Um, I'm joined by my co-host, Jen. Uh, so thanks for listening. In, and let's get into the conversation. So, Dr. Smith, to start, can you introduce yourself and really for us, that's name, where you're from, what you do when you're not working first, and then what you do when you're working? Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Rachel and Jen. Um, I am C. Scott Smith. I'm a retired professor of medicine at the University of Washington. I'm a professor emeritus. Um, and I was in leadership in the residency program for 28 years. It was an internal medicine residency. And also I wrote questions for the USMLE, which is the National Medical Boards for eight years. So I had this kind of unique skill set to help people out into getting into residency. Um, what I love to do when I'm not working, I, you know, as I say, I'm retired. So I always tell people the best parts of retirement are you don't set the alarm clock and you can do whatever you want and you don't have to make a living at it anymore. <laughs> So I'm jealous. Uh, so yeah, yes. I love it. <laughs> Can't wait uh, to be retired. So one thing that I love doing, my brother and I have gone fishing in Alaska for 18 straight years now, and which is where I get this logo stuff because they give us a new piece every year. But I also, um, I'll probably get along with your son if he crashes the party because I love fo- uh, hunting for fossils and minerals around Idaho, which is a very good active place to do that. I would say that when I am working now, I'm on a couple of boards of directors for different things, Idaho Science Olympiad and a Medical Education Foundation. But mostly what I'm doing is working with immigrants and refugees. Uh, My wife and I sponsored an asylum seeker from Honduras, um, and we work very closely with an agency for new Americans for brand new immigrants. Um, I work with, as you're going to hear, Global Talent Docs, which is a group of people trying to help uh, refugee physicians to get into practice in Idaho. Nice. So that kind of leads us into what IMG stands for, right? So International Medical Graduates, right? So who are these IMG folks and how did you begin working with the sector of the community and workforce? It it is an alphabet soup. So first of all, anybody that went to medical school overseas is an international medical graduate. And that could be U.S. citizens that chose to go to a country overseas to do their training. Um, It could be other foreign citizens that went through the normal programs that would look very much like ours. So typically like from England or Australia or Italy, And they are just coming to the U.S. because they decided to practice here. But the ones that we're really focusing on today are um, what I would say are IMGs with special circumstances. So we tend to think of them as refugees, but that's only about 20 percent of them uh, that that went through the, the project of getting registered as a refugee before they came to the U.S. when they're in an intermediate country. There's others that end up being asylees and then the alarming term parolees. So, for instance, everyone that came out of Afghanistan in one fell swoop is a parolee. They're not even granted yet admission into the asylum program. So those are technical terms, but they're important to keep track of because when I'm working with people, I'm working with what I would call international medical graduates with special circumstances. 
refugees, asylees, okay. and parolees. Got it. So what do what are some of the barriers that these IMG folks face coming to the United States? Well, there's some huge barriers. Uh, the first one is because they're under these, typically these programs, uh, they have a very short timeline for getting any kind of permanent job, um, getting their licensure, getting into residency, whatever. So they, they really have to um, run out and grab what they're able to grab as a job because I think they get six months. And so many of them are ending up uh, doing things like being a translator for their native language or being a nursing assistant because they can do that quickly, that kind of thing. Very few of them are able to do something comparable to what they used to do as a physician. So that's the first barrier. The second barrier is just the cost of this mess. So now you've got an entry-level job as a part-time translator, and you have to pay 30000 over the course of your prep time to pay for the tests, to pay for all of the application process to residency. If you are lucky enough to get interviews to fly, if they're going to do those interviews in person, et cetera. So it's estimated to be about $30,000. And with our refugees that have a family and they're trying to keep everything going with, you know, maybe four kids at home, and they have this entry-level job. It's a really tough ask. And then we have this balance that we need to have fiduciary responsibility for protecting the public, like maintaining the quality of these people. And we balance that against the fairness to these individual candidates. Well, in almost every case, the states have just decided on the former being the most important. So they basically say, okay, these people, no matter what their background, they just have to do what a brand new U.S. medical student would have to do. Take all the tests, get into residency from the beginning, go pass residency, um, and, and then they can apply for a license. And so it doesn't seem fair to me, to the candidates that, well, I, I have candidates that have been out practicing for 15 years and in the morning, they see uh, their patients, and in the afternoon, they teach courses to residents and fellows and medical students at the local medical school, and then they come here and they have to start completely over again when they have so much to offer. And we have so few physicians. We have quite a physician shortage nationwide. So those, those are the three things, the, the quick timeline, the cost of this whole thing, and then the fact that they have to do this all over again, which is a huge burden. I can't imagine. Um, I, I was with my husband when he was going through his medical residency, and um, now he teaches at a residency. And that's not something I would sign up to do again um, <laughs> as, as the partner of somebody going through a residency, much less somebody who's been out practicing and goes back and does that um, for themselves. So I, I just can't imagine being in that position of weighing, do I, do I really need to do this again to do what I love? So um, I, I think that that's really important for folks to hear because I don't know if that's apparent for somebody that's not really in it like you. I start every meeting by saying, you guys are so tough and so driven. If I was doing the reverse and I had to go to Afghanistan and learn Pashto and take every test and start residency over, I'd be a taxi driver. I wouldn't be able to go through all that again. Yeah, that that's remarkable. Um, yeah, so when we're talking residency, right, you're talking 
easy 80, 100 hour weeks and yep. um, just just bearing the brunt of it. So that's, that's um, I think, again, important for everybody listening to hear. Um, one of the things that we really like to focus on um, in particular is kind of the context of people's experience and working in these communities. And I know for you, you do quite a bit of work in Idaho. Uh, and one thing that folks from outside of Idaho may not know is that there is a large um, uh, refugee or kind of relocated population in Idaho. Uh, so given that there's a relatively large community of people um, who have experienced diaspora or refugee status, but also this kind of rural nature of Idaho, can you talk a little bit about how the experience of um, an IMG and their family coming to Idaho might be different from somebody who goes to another part of the United States? Well, um, from the standpoint of a medical refugee, it's very limiting because uh, these folks have done all kinds of different practice, as you might imagine. But in Idaho, at the current time, we have three different types of residencies, family medicine, internal medicine, and psychiatry. A new pediatrics residency will be starting up this next summer. But, you know, if they're a surgeon or they're a radiologist or something, they're out of luck. Uh, they got stuck in Idaho, and we don't have that here. So they they can't even move in these programs for, I think it's one year. So they, they have to really be thinking about, what do I want to do next? Uh, and does it, do we offer it in Idaho? So there's that. The other piece that really comes up frequently is that if we're going to get anything from the legislature to support these programs, then the legislature is probably going to attach what I would call a stick or a carrot. Like, one way or another, this person needs to practice in rural Idaho in primary care for a period of time because we need that so bad. Our state is 97% considered underrepresented by physicians uh, 97% of the area is underrepresented and is at risk. So there's lots of choices for them. But uh, I, I would say those are the two biggest things is not a lot of choices in residency as well as it's an incredibly rural state, which is going to, any training they get is going to push them towards rural practice for at least a while to pay back. Uh, we've talked a lot about the barriers and um, I'm feeling tired just hearing about it, not to make light of it, but I mean, th this is what you live and breathe every day. So to, you know, get through those, all those barriers, what do you see as kind of those doors that we can open? What are those opportunities to to better serve and support um, IMGs um, with special circumstances uh, that, that are coming into the community? Well, um, so first of all, what I'd say, Rachel, what you already pointed out is we're a State Department relocation center, and we are getting lots of new refugees and immigrants all the time. And so there's tremendous uh, need out there for practitioners that speak as a native in Pashto, in Arabic, in Spanish, whatever. Uh, and uh, we're, these are people that could provide those services quite easily and also be culturally appropriate within those cultures. So that's that's the first thing. And then, you know, I think that uh, I'll, it's easier to give an example for me. So I had a young man from Somalia who left Africa because of his risk staying there, went to, I believe it was Jordan, to do med school. So he had to learn Arabic. And then 
from Jordan, he comes to the U.S., and now he learns English. I mean, this kid is really bright, right? And when he got here, I asked, you know, you're in Idaho. Uh, he has a brother that was that doesn't isn't a physician and doesn't do health care. So they ended up here together, so they at least have each other. And I said, what, you know, what is the most amazing thing to you about this whole process? And he says, here in Idaho, I can go to sleep at night without having to worry about being in a war zone. What's going to happen? And it just hit me that, oh, man, no, no wonder they are so driven to make this work, you know. So uh, I, the, the thing that I think we need to do is to put more balance into the equation from the refugee side, basically. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use refugee as shorthand because uh, it's easier and people understand it. So uh, what I've been working on about the last year is uh, we put together a bipartisan legislative advisory group to say, you know, Idaho is currently 50th out of 50 in doctors per population. We need more doctors. We have this pool of doctors. How can we safely and fairly bring them into this practice? And that group is really, it, it was, it had all the stakeholders in it, the insurance companies, the licensing bureaus, big hospital systems, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the folks said, as we were talking about these barriers, uh, he said, well, so they need to get a job quickly and it has to be a reasonable paying job so they can do all this testing and whatnot. And the other thing that they need, which they really struggle to get by themselves, is just clinical experience in the U.S. healthcare system. Because if they're going to apply to residency, they need that on their resume, basically. So he says, well, why don't this, this test, this U.S. MLE 1 and 2, the first two of three parts of the boards, why don't we just move those into residency and accept them right into residency without those tests? You know, and this, of course, to my ears as a former uh, ad administrator in residency programs, it's heresy. But then I stopped to think about it and said, well, I really don't believe these tests very much anyway, so why not, you know? So we started to look at doing that. Um, there is a clause in the professional licensing board in Idaho, which most states have, that basically says you can grant a temporary restricted license if the person is going to be in a supervised situation with graduated responsibility as they develop, which is basically residency, right? So that's the, the mechanism for licensing new interns and residents into our training program. I said, why can't we extend that? to include uh, people that have had practice experience, significant practice experience, and give them the same opportunity to get into a residency, be supervised, gradually take up more responsibility as they are able, et cetera. So um, the fact that it was bipartisan was wonderful. I, I actually didn't expect to be able to do that in Idaho. And um, we have moved forward on that. and. Then, as we took it to the Idaho Medical Association, we got a bunch of questions. We got basically a lot of support, but a bunch of questions about have you that now we're getting into the real alphabet soup. Have you talked to the uh, ECFMG who certifies the candidates to take uh, to go into the match in residency? Have you talked to the NRMP, the National Residency Matching Program? Are they willing to do this? 
Have you talked to the ACGME, the, the outfit that certifies residencies? Are they going to penalize them for doing something weird outside the norm that isn't necessarily the, the rules don't allow for that? So the last several months, I've been talking to the leadership at those three organizations, and, and it looks very good, like they are interested in creating a pilot where we can just say, all right, Mr. Refugee or Ms. Refugee, you're going to work as an observer over at Family Medicine, let's say, or Internal Medicine Boise. Based on that and whatever records we can get, they will decide if they will grant you access to this one slot that they're going to have through a funded grant in this pilot project. And that one slot will have a very different and special curriculum where they help you study, uh, they help you get your English up to snuff, they help you understand the U.S. healthcare system. This is where CEHU comes in because they may be one of the clinical sites that's willing to participate in this. So uh, in that year, they are required to pass USMLE 1 and 2 that they everyone else had to pass to get into residency. And all of these organizations, at least preliminarily, are willing to look at exemptions and waivers for this study. Now, this is important because there are states all across this country that are trying to figure this problem out. Um, and they have had, you know, a wide variety of ways of approaching it, but nobody has come at it this way, which is, it was brilliant when this person came up with, well, that one thing would solve most of the problems. They get a really good paying job. They get it sort of guaranteed on the way in the door. It's going to help them study for boards. It's not going to take away time from studying for boards, et cetera. So, so that's where we're working now, and we're really excited that it may, as as my partner in this, uh, Jed Epperly, who's, uh, you may, your, your listeners may know him, he's pretty famous in the local uh, healthcare uh, systems. And we were medical school partners. We, we went to medical school together. So we both have this same bent of social action in medicine, I guess. What he says is, you know what? I think it sounds like this dog will hunt. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, that's great that the politicians and even the organizations that you've reached out to saw value in this idea. Um, and you're almost you're almost at the point where we're going to be able to implement that. So that's amazing. So like flipping the tables a little bit here, how can an IMG, you know, refugee support the communities where they have been um, relocated? Well, I think... Uh that first of all, the extended family of these um, refugees often is is doing something, you know, so they might be cooking in their native way to help a restaurant or something like that. They're trying to make ends meet and they're trying to bring the skills that they have. Um, that's number one. Number two is they can act as interpreters that, that should not be their only job because that's a low paying entry level job. But they can still do that, and they often do. It's so helpful because in our systems, we have a fair number of U.S. doctors that can speak enough Spanish to get by, uh, but we don't have very many that can speak any Arabic or Pashto or, or, the, or Ukrainian or many of the languages that we're needing to speak. So those two things, I think, are, would be very helpful for community service kind of. And then just, it won't be long if we get this program through before they are practicing in underserved areas for us, which we really, really need. 
you may not have seen the maps, but Ada County has a lot of underserved areas. They're called, you know, Garden City and whatnot, that we just need people that are willing to go to places and provide primary care. Exactly. Yeah. The the shortage map for Idaho is the shape of Idaho, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's got a, a few little islands like Sun Valley and Boise, but but they're pretty small. And there's only three of them. Right, that are right. a shortage area. Yeah. I mean, I love the 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 idea about matching the need, right? Because, you know, the the entire state um, has that need and that's not that different from the rest of the country too. Well, and it's interesting the conversations that I have with them because when they first hit the door, for them, family medicine is exactly the same as a GP used to be, right? It's this kind of one year you did an internship and now you're just doing entry-level medical stuff. And so they never want to look at it. And then um, I say, it's really different here. You need to do some rotations with them to understand that. And then I start talking about, even if you graduated in family medicine, your background's in surgery, and you're capable of doing a whole bunch of stuff, here's how it could look. You practice in Boise, and you don't get to do treadmills, you don't get to do scopes, you don't get to first assist on surgery very often, because... All of the specialists and subspecialists have taken those things over. You practice in, say, McCall, and you get to do scopes. You get to do treadmills. You get to do the first rounds of chemo that are easy. You get to do all of this. You know, you can do surgeries that you're trained to do, appendectomies and whatnot. And uh, you can first assist with the the one surgeon in the community, usually, on, on bigger things, and you've got the skills, and you'll get to do way more if you go out in these rural areas. So it is a draw to them to keep doing more of what they had already learned by going out to the rural areas. And then finally, I want to just show them, you know, yeah. because of my interest in fossil hunting and minerals and stuff, we take little field trips pretty frequently. Uh, and so we went down to Leslie Gulch and that whole area that's just beautiful. And then the reward for me is you've got, you know, maybe 10 families from all around the world bringing their best dish to the potluck, you know. So we sit down at a picnic table and just eat amazing food. (laughs) Yeah, that's fantastic. And thinking about the rural, um, you know, family medicine surgery crossover, probably five or six years ago, I was up um, in central Idaho in a rural FQHC and we were doing a tour of the building and the family medicine provider stopped me and said, oh, and that's where we do most of our chainsaw accidents, right? <laughs> it's like uh, when you're talking about being the only doc in the entire county, um, you know, your job doesn't stop with, no. um, you know, colds and strep swabs, right? So exactly. I, I love I think that you bring I know that, up. that clinic and I, I had internal medicine residents rotating through there just to get a little more experience. And so after the first one came back, I said, well, what kind of experiences did you have? And he said, oh, wow. One day it was really weird. Some schizophrenic fellow came into town. Nobody knew him. He got, he was out of his mind basically. And he shot the 89 year old minister. And then we got a posse together and went and shot him. And so they both show up at the hospital at the same time, and we didn't oh even have enough chest tubes <laughs> to put in all the chest wounds from these gunshots. Oh. And I'm like, that's a little more experience than I wanted you to get <laughs> out there. 
Exactly. Well, I mean, speaking of maps and like the needs in Idaho, especially, um, do you have a sense of the total value of workforce loss by not engaging with these IMG clinical care talented people? You know, we only have an estimate because I'm pretty familiar with this, you know, immediate Ada County area and a little bit outside of that. But, you know, uh, we have other communities around the state that are also State Department relocation centers. And one of my uh, my uh, representatives on this committee is from the sort of Twin and Pocatello area. And they were really interested in this, too. So I suspect I'm missing a lot of candidates. But on the order of, I would say, 10 to 15 statewide that would be available, and we just haven't pushed that because we we need to get these programs up and going, and then we need to go and find out how many options do we have for filling these small spots. We're going to start really small, probably only two or three residencies, so we can keep control of the whole experience and really measure it and make sure it's going to work before we expand it. Keep keep control of the experience and the experiment, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's a, it, it's sort of a qualitative experience. It's not a big enough experiment to get real, you know, concrete numbers out of because there's only going to be a few people in it. But what we will get is the stories and where the, where the barriers within the system might lie and how we might overcome those and the different things we've tried and which ones work the best and that kind of stuff. Right. It's like you said earlier, it's a pilot, right? You figure out what's working, what's not. We'll pivot a little where it needs to be pivoted and make it where it's a program that can be rolled out, you know, quickly and almost have a playbook at that point, right? Yeah. And I've done this before for other things. So uh, one, my last eight years with the uh, VA were a running, getting a big grant and running an interprofessional training program um, with with others from nursing pra- nurse practitioner, from pharmacy, from psychology, um, and from nursing schools. So you know, it, it was it was the same thing. You start off, you think you know what's going to go on, you're really surprised. You learn a lot along the way, and uh, so I, I've, I'm comfortable with that. And I'm also comfortable with the the different way that we need to evaluate this than the standard, you know, pre-post t-tests and changes in some score of something. We we won't tell our data team, but sometimes you just like to build it as you fly it, right? <laughs> well, your data team and I get along really well because they love hearing about all of the things I've stolen from the social sciences to measure this stuff. <laughs> so they're kind of drooling over some of these options, too. Uh, I love it. Here at Who we don't call it stealing. We call it R&D, which is rip off and duplicate. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like. I'm going to steal that. I mean, Perfect. rip off and duplicate that. <laughs> All right, we you got it. Uh, well, I think that for some people, you know, that are listening to us, you know, the information really speaks to them, and then for some people, I think kind of the narrative, the story, really speaks to them too. So, as as we wrap up, can you just tell us a story that really paints the picture of the struggles that um, refugees with a medical background, IMGs and their families face as as they come to Idaho. Yeah, I've got a really good example of that. In fact, you know some of these folks. So um, this couple uh, came from Iraq 
Uh, they had two very small children at the time. Um, they, uh, the, the husband's father was a general in the military and was executed by the insurgents. And he and his brother, especially he and his wife, heard one night from a friend, I think maybe even a family member, that you're on the list for tomorrow, meaning you're supposed to get killed tomorrow by the police. And so they had like go bags ready to go and they grabbed everything and they flew to Jordan that night. Um, in Jordan, they were there two or three years uh, just trying to establish refugee status. They wanted to get to the United States. So when you're in a refugee camp, I guess you have a few choices about where you might go and for whatever reason they wanted to come to the U.S. So they got um, chosen to come to the U.S. and to come to Boise. So one's a pediatrician, the other's a cardiologist. We don't have either of those residencies, but we have something that's close at the time. They have been here since 2009, working on passing the tests, getting into clinical experience, doing observerships with these residencies. They have yet to get into a residency, although they're getting much closer. Um, and family medicine, uh, which is now called Full Circle, the residency that's here in town in family medicine, they are starting a pediatrics residency in the fall, in the summer. And I've introduced her to the future program director. She's coming to the planning meetings once a month and stuff. And so, I mean, they have been working for more than 10 years trying to get all these things together and keep their family of four going. Uh, they, they have been doing quite a bit of stuff. She was working with uh, what used to be called MSTMRI, the, the uh, cancer center doing sort of heading clinical trials. And he has been working as a clinical integration manager for different hospital systems and, and health insurance programs. So they're at least doing things that are health related, getting sort of credit for some of this as they look at residency. But, but what a struggle it's been for them. And if you know these two people, I've never seen them not smiling, not laughing, always upbeat. You know, their kids are just wonderful. They're some of the people I take on on these fossil hunts and stuff. And they're just always seeing the upside of this. But, but that's a pretty typical example. Some of the people that came out of Afghanistan got out because they were physicians and they're spouses and kids are still in Afghanistan and they're trying to get them out and that is not an easy process. So there's just unimaginable to most of us in the United States context that these people are fighting all the time. And as I feel like that's my task is to help get rid of some of those barriers and make this easier because they will be wonderful additions to our communities. I've had several successes that have gone through the residencies and are now out in practice in the Boise area in um, either internal medicine or family medicine. And they're doing exactly what we'd hope. They're, they're tending to go to the underserved areas. They're acting as culturally appropriate native speakers in their own cultures and languages for a group of patients that has wanted to, you know, speak Arabic to an Arabic physician for a long time. So, so anyway, um, those are probably two good examples. 
Well, thank you for sharing and thank you for the work that you do. It's just incredibly powerful to hear um, not only the challenges that people face, but that the perseverance too, right? Just know we're going to figure out a way to do this. And so to have allies in that work is incredible. Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, we, we have a shortage. So why not use these people who they're passionate over, you know, healthcare? They might need to learn a different way, you know, the health system in America is different, right, from wherever they may have, may have come from. But there's re- no reason why we shouldn't be using their talents, right? So finding a way, and I think this is a great project and program, and I was excited that see who's going to hopefully be a part of it. So, yeah, thanks for all your hard work, and I look forward to the next year or so that we'll be um, going through this journey together, probably, most likely. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it sounds very possible, you know, Gen Y, I, you have too many gens there, so I can't keep you all yes, straight. We do. <laughs> <laughs> but Gen Y, I think, has articulated a really nice vision of a training clinic that could, could accept like almost any level of person, uh, whether they just need to learn how to draw blood all the way to they need some authentic sounding clinical experience that helps them get into a residency, you know, and being a organization and not an academic institution gives you a little freedom that places that are academically affiliated may not have to open those things up and stuff. So I I think it sounds like you're working through many of the uh, barriers that you will have, like how do we get these people insured? You know, they're not going to be touching and doing things to patients, but they will be observing and following patients. And so they need a malpractice and they need little offices and all of the stuff it's going to take to do that. I'm 100% supportive, but I'm glad that's not my job <laughs> to figure that out. <laughs> thanks, we, Rachel, We've got thanks. a good team here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you do, and they're all pretty committed to all this, so that's good. Yeah, yeah we do have a good team. Absolutely. Well, thanks again for your time. Not at all. I hope that was close to what you wanted. All right, everyone, thanks for listening in. Be sure to like and follow so you don't miss out on new episodes every other Thursday. And remember, support each other with some additional life support. Thanks for listening. Life Support is a podcast developed by Sihu with the support of a variety of funders. See our show notes for more info. It's where we talk to providers, experts, and others about their experiences with health and the systems that create it. This episode was edited and produced by Anthony Leone. For more information, visit us on the web at sihu.org.